0: and we desperately need the perspective of those who have gone before us. The whole idea of the communion of saints that we almost never think about, this idea that we're actually part of a church community that transcends centuries, Uh, enrich our lives if we took it seriously.
1: What does the real story of Thanksgiving tell us about loving God and learning from history? Welcome to this edition of First Person as we talk with historian Dr. Tracy McKenzie about the first Thanksgiving. I'm Wayne Shepherd. I invite you to listen as we explore the lessons of the pilgrims, even as we prepare to celebrate this meaningful holiday. These First Person interviews come to you each week as we sit down to meet some interesting people. I certainly hope you'll stay tuned, but if you miss any portion of what's to come, please visit firstpersoninterview.com to listen online or use our smartphone app. As we talk about giving thanks today, please take a moment to thank the Far East Broadcasting Company for making this program possible. Our guest now, Dr. Tracy McKenzie, is professor and chair of the Department of History at Wheaton College in Illinois. He's the author of several books, including The First Thanksgiving, which we'll discuss today. We have more information about Dr. McKenzie and his history blog at our website, firstpersoninterview.com. When we sat down recently to talk, I began by asking Tracy what led him on this quest
0: to understand with historical accuracy the first Thanksgiving. Wayne, I actually uh, began uh, exploring the possibility of this project over a decade ago. Uh, Over time, I just began to have more and more and more of a longing to be in conversation with other Christians about how we remember the past as believers. Uh, I think it's very important that we go to the past, Uh, certainly we're, we're Called to remember the past faithfully, but I think there are lots of pitfalls along the way, and I think Christians often can fall into traps uh, unbeknownst to them that actually lead us astray. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be in conversation uh, with Christians about what it means to to think Christianly uh, when we uh, remember the past. But I thought that doing so in the abstract wasn't very effective. I wanted some sort of concrete context Something to do to, anchor that. It to a story, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. a story that we're familiar with and can. Uh, can explore, and over time, it just dawned on me that I thought the um, uh, the Thanksgiving story was a perfect context for for having that kind of conversation.
1: I find that fascinating, as I find the whole approach to history fascinating, and that deserves an entire conversation in and of itself. I wish we could go deeper on that and deeper even on Thanksgiving here today, but with the time that we have, uh, let's talk about it. First of all, I know that you've written much about the Civil War, and it was interesting to me to learn that uh, the real celebration of Thanksgiving, of course, goes back to the pilgrims, and we'll talk about all that. But it was in the 1840s that it came really into American consciousness, if I'm correct in saying that, just prior to the Civil War. Tell that story about the Civil War and the, the South's reaction to Thanksgiving.
0: <laughs> well, uh, if, when we think about uh, Thanksgiving as a national holiday as opposed to a holiday that's uh, celebrated in a region of the country or in a particular state, as a national holiday, we would trace it to the Civil War. Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, issues a national proclamation for a day of Thanksgiving in uh, the fall of 1863. And when he does that, that initiates an unbroken string that continues to this day. So we, we might remember that year as the first national observance of, of Thanksgiving. Except when I say national, of course, I don't mean national because at that moment the, the country was rent asunder in, in mm-hmm. Civil War. Uh, and in fact, in the context in which Lincoln is uh, issuing a proclamation for uh, a day of Thanksgiving, it's clear that part of what he wants Americans to be thankful for is uh, union victories on the battlefield. <laughs> okay, And so in a way that we tend not to remember, at the time, uh, many Southerners saw Thanksgiving uh, as one, a northern holiday, and secondly, a, a holiday that uh, was infused with political significance. Mm-hmm. And, and it was part
1: of that war of northern aggression. Absolutely, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs>
0: fair enough. So it, it sent a message that was was very controversial. Mm-hmm. So as I write in the book, it's it's quite a, a period of time before uh, southern uh, individuals embrace Thanksgiving. It's it's well. Uh, toward the end of the 19th century at the earliest. And as I mentioned, I, I actually believe this very sincerely that as Thanksgiving begins to be associated uh, with football is, is the moment when uh, more and more Americans outside of uh, the North begin to embrace it. All right. It
1: only took three minutes for football to enter this conversation <laughs> here today. Uh, how do we know what we know about the first Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving.
0: That's a great question. It's very interesting. There uh, are a couple of sources that we uh, draw from, uh, particularly. Uh, one is a report from one of the younger uh, Pilgrim members, a man named Edward Winslow, who writes a report in a letter in 1622. And then the longtime governor of the uh, colony at Plymouth, William Bradford, writes a history uh, late in his life. Uh, and both of them give us a little bit of foundation. Uh, but neither of them tell us very much. Uh, In in fact, the most detailed um, description we have of that celebration in 1621 is from Edward Winslow's uh, writings, and he devotes four sentences to the topic. That's Uh, it. I count them up. It's 115 words. So we base
1: our entire national holiday on those four uh, sentences. Pretty (laughs) much,
0: pretty much. It's it's a very slender uh, foundation. Huh. So who was Edward Winslow? So Edward Winslow was uh, basically an assistant to the governor of, uh, of Plymouth uh, Colony. Uh, he's in his early 20s when he migrates as part of that original migration in 1620. Uh, and actually, he doesn't uh, live permanently uh, in uh, New England. He returns to England, oh. and it's there that he lives out the rest of his life. He's also the only pilgrim that we have uh, a um, a picture of. Really? Uh, and and we, we so often can see in our mind's eye those pilgrims gathered, and, and the reality is it's mostly imagination. We and
1: have a portrait of him. We then. have
0: one portrait of him, although it's a portrait that was done maybe 30 years after uh, the original migration.
1: Okay. The other name that comes to mind is William Bradford.
0: Yes. And Bradford was for more than 30 years the governor of um, the plantation and keeps a copious record. So the reality is he's sort of the historian of this uh, venture. His history, though, uh, is very much uh, kept uh, private during his lifetime. Then it's passed down uh, through descendants for a number of generations eventually Uh, disappears Uh, and we think may have been uh, looted by perhaps a British officer during the American Revolution. Hmm. Uh, Whatever happens, it turns up in the Library of the Bishop of London in the 1850s. So it's a period of more than two centuries where it's essentially lost. Hmm. Uh, And one of the reasons that the Thanksgiving story really only catches on uh, in the middle of the 1800s is that most Americans had no inkling that it had ever occurred before Mm -hmm. then.
1: Again, that is so interesting. Well, when we say the Puritans or the Pilgrims, are those terms interchangeable?
0: They're not exactly interchangeable, although they are related. The Puritans, as many of you will know, were a group of um, uh, English Protestants who believed that the Church of England had not really broken sufficiently from Catholic, uh, from the Catholic Church in terms of its uh, belief and its uh, w- practices of worship. Uh, so the, the Pilgrims were a subset of Puritans who were wanting to purify the Anglican church, but they were a very radical su- uh, subset.
1: Very separatist?
0: Uh, the, the best label would be to refer to them as separist, separatists, which meant essentially that not only did they believe that the Church of England was corrupt, but they actually believed that it was not a genuine church. They, they actually uh, deliberated at length as to whether it was even sinful to listen to a, to an Anglican minister, and ultimately they decided that it was. Is
1: that right? And I've heard you discuss the fact they didn't accept the King James Bible.
0: Oh, not at all. not at not, not at all. They actually would have adopted or used much more, uh, a Bible that was first published in the 1560s in Geneva, Switzerland. And this particular Bible uh, had study notes that were actually quite critical of the idea of divine right of, of kings. Uh, and so when King James commissions a new Bible in England, he's wanting to do away with those study notes <laughs> and, and convince his uh, subjects that uh, he had uh, sort of divine uh, approval yeah. for his leadership. So they
1: viewed that Bible, that particular Bible, as very pro-royalty.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and they, they wanted nothing. Nothing Nothing to, to do to with them. right. That's right. right. That's right. Would they,
1: they being the pilgrims, would they be surprised at how we celebrate Thanksgiving today? Not the not the modern day traditions, but just the fact that we have the holiday? Oh,
0: I'm sure that they would be. Um, uh, the, the, the pilgrims themselves, their, their colony is never large. Uh, William Bradford, toward the end of his life, actually seems to be quite discouraged about how that colony has fared. I don't think he ever would at the end of his life, at least, anticipated that we would remember them in some sense as as sort of honorary founders. And then, in terms of just the celebration of Thanksgiving itself, um, I go into this in a lot of detail in the book that I've written on the on the topic. They they didn't believe in regular holidays. They, they thought that holidays that became regular. Um, were almost always empty rituals. They associated this with the Catholic practice. Even where the, Christmas. Uh, they did not celebrate Christmas. They did not celebrate Easter. They would say, show me in Scripture where we're commanded to do either of those things. Uh, and they wanted nothing of it. They did believe that Scripture gave uh, permission for irregular, what they would call providential, days of thanksgiving or fasting and humiliation. So they believed if you're going to have a Thanksgiving Day, it's not something that you write into the calendar and say it's going to be the fourth Thursday of every November. They say you do, um, you have these celebrations in unique response to unique blessings of God.
1: We're going to talk later about uh, the implications of all this for us as believers today. But just how I mean, talk for a moment about the trials and travails of the pilgrims. It was sure. it was terrible, wasn't
0: it? It was awful. I mean, it's, it starts with the voyage itself on the Mayflower, which we can't relate to today. But the the size of the the tween decks area that they uh, travel on is about half the size of a modern day basketball court. And for 65 days, there were 102 individuals—men, women, children—with all the worldly blessings on such a confined space. Miraculously, uh, there's only one fatality during that uh, voyage. But then they arrive uh, right at the end of November. It takes them a month to uh, find a proper place to settle, and not the
1: place they intended. And it's not the place they
0: intended. It's several hundred miles north, actually, of where they had anticipated landing. And so they actually will finally choose Plymouth as their location just a few days before Christmas. Uh, and so in late December, uh, they will begin trying to, to create a new new home. Uh, they have no shelter. They're living on board the Mayflower. They're actually wading every December day through uh, water over half a mile up Imagine to their armpits. Imagine that. Wow. Uh, and they die in huge numbers. And they're probably dying more than anything else because of the exposure to the ailments. Mm-hmm. Not starvation. It's not necessarily some uh, kind of epidemic. Uh, but whatever the cause, by mid-March... Of the 102 original passenger um, uh, passengers of the Mayflower, uh, 52 have died. Just a few months later. A few months later, about three months later. Uh, there are 26 families represented uh, on that voyage. Um, 18 of them have lost uh, some uh, family uh, member. Uh, there have been 18 married couples. 15 of them uh, are no longer intact. It's just hard for us to fathom the extent of the loss. There's much more we
1: need to learn and apply to our own lives today from that first Thanksgiving. We'll continue in a moment. This is Ed Cannon, president of the Far East Broadcasting Company. FEBC partners with First Person to bring these interviews to you each week because we never tire of hearing how God moves on the hearts of people to accomplish His purpose, whether in the hard-to-reach places of the world or right here at home. We serve a living God who leads men and women to do great things for him. Learn more about FEBC at FirstPersonInterview.com. Click on the FEBC banner. My guest is Tracy McKenzie. Tracy is professor and chair of the history department at Wheaton College. He has written a book it's a great book called the first thanksgiving what the real story tells us about loving god and learning from history and i want to get to some of those lessons in a few moments tracy but we're exploring that first thanksgiving there's a famous painting of of the holiday and i've i've been in a situation where you've displayed the painting and pointed out the various
0: aspects of it on the radio can you hit just a couple of those highlights of what's in that uh, sure. Um, the, the portrait that we probably uh, remember uh, most is is one by an uh, early uh, 20th century New England artist uh, named Branscombe. And she uh, it sets the scene that we're also familiar with, with a long table set out uh, in the open with the uh, pilgrims and, and Native Americans enjoying uh, the feast. Um the thing to stress about that is that it is entirely uh, a figment, really, of her imagination. There were no long tables. I think we can imagine the pilgrims in Wampanoag seat, seated on the ground. Um, they almost certainly would have been eating with their hands. Uh, and uh, when we think about those gathered, uh, there would have been probably at least two Native Americans for every pilgrim. We never see it that way, but they were badly outnumbered. Uh, They would have been uh, disproportionately children, more than half of those still alive by the fall of 1621 are or teenagers or younger. And there would have been five males for every female. Mm. So it wasn't the domestic scene that we Mm -hmm. tend to show. I I Mm -hmm. liken it much more to a sort of 4th of July barbecue outdoors (laughs) than uh, than anything else. And it
1: does illustrate how we've romanticized the whole Thanksgiving story, haven't we?
0: Oh, absolutely. When it really becomes um, a national holiday in the latter half of the 19th century, it's really presented by those who advocate it as a kind of domestic holiday. It would be a holiday for women. The men had uh, George Washington's birthday in the 4th of July. Now, women would have this domestic holiday that would center around Mm -hmm. uh, the wonderful meal. Uh, The fact that there were only three adult Pilgrim women still alive at the time of the first Thanksgiving, we tend to overlook. And what was the Native American tribe? It was called the Wampanoag. This was a tribe that was situated in parts of Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Um, The the Wampanoag had been absolutely uh, devastated by disease. We don't know all of the details, But it appears that there were waves of epidemics that struck the indigenous populations of the New England coastline. Brought from from Europe, likely, right? Almost certainly, uh, probably by uh, fishing parties that were touching uh, on land uh, over a period of several decades. So sometime from the very late 1500s to the uh, 16-teens uh, New England's population was absolutely uh, devastated. Mm-hmm. So the Wampanoag went from a pretty powerful, numerically large tribe to a really struggling, small remnant. Uh, and the reality is uh, that's you know it's a blessing for the Pilgrims because uh, the Wampanoag find themselves in need of a strong ally in the various conflicts that they're involved in, and they think that the Pilgrims might be uh, a kind of okay. uh, ally.
1: So it wasn't a totally selfish act for them to show the Pilgrims how to farm and. Do everything to live life uh, successfully.
0: Uh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. We certainly romanticize this as a kind of uh, multicultural celebration. I, I suspect that the relationship always was, was quite tense. Mm-hmm. Both sides are suspicious of the other, and both sides are concerned about um, whether the other can be trusted. Yeah. yeah. And who is Squanto? Squanto actually is not a Wampanoag. He was uh, a, a member of a different tribe in the general area called the Patuxent. Uh, and he actually, the story is involved and, and fascinating, but he actually had been kidnapped by uh, European uh, sailors a few years before. Uh, over a really circuitous path, it ultimately made it back to New England to find that his tribe had been literally wiped out by disease. So, as a uh, sole surviving member of this small tribe, he is effectively a prisoner of the Wampanoag. Okay. Uh, and they uh, don't trust him either and 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 Squanto actually probably reaches out to the pilgrims in part because he, too, is looking for an ally. so it's it's actually a uh, a, a pattern, intricate pattern of suspicious alliances and, and so forth. It's not the multicultural, warm and fuzzy uh, thing that we remember. Well,
1: I would love to go deeper on all of these details as you do in your book, but I'll have to refer our listeners to your book, The First Thanksgiving, and of course, we'll have information about it on our program website, and uh, that will be given at the end of the program here today, Tracy. Um, let's make the turn then to, uh, and I know this is a great passion of yours. What what are the lessons for us? We're, we're not just about studying the details of history. We have to learn from it, don't we?
0: Sure. I think there are all kinds of, uh, of lessons. I, I think there are many things that are admirable about the pilgrims. And the reality is the unfortunate thing is that we've turned them into sort of cardboard cut-out characters, not really flesh-and-blood uh, human beings. They were uh, fallen people just like you and I, uh, but they showed a great deal of courage in a variety of ways. Let me just suggest a couple of things. Um, one, I, when I encounter the pilgrims and take their story seriously, I am so convicted by the individualism that defines uh, modern uh, American culture, including modern American church culture, it seems to me. Uh, when the pilgrims decide to leave Holland, they actually migrated uh, to Holland first from England. When they decided to leave Holland for uh, uh, some new uh, home, they are determined to leave as a group. And they're determined to leave as a group. There are a variety of reasons that they're not flourishing in Holland, but they are determined to keep their covenant church community intact. Hmm. Uh, And so when some are are suffering, the determination is not to tell them to go and be warm and be filled and find some solution elsewhere. The the conversation is, no, what can we do as a congregation uh, to establish the sort of environment for uh, are flourishing,
1: as illustrated, when they arrived, they they lived basically in a commune, didn't they?
0: Well, they do. they 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 uh, build their homes within yards of one another. It's actually illegal. I find this so. Uh uh, compelling in the first laws of the Plymouth Colony that are passed in 1627 it is illegal for an individual male to live by himself. They they thought that individuals living uh, out of a network of accountability was not good for anyone, and they weren't going to allow it.
1: All right, do you want to draw the lessons out, or
0: shall I on <laughs> that? On that? <laughs> well, I mean, you can think about it, but we're just we are so uh, individualistic, and when we encounter another people that sees the world in such a different way, it sort of reveals that to us in a in, in a new way. Mm-hmm. We see it again. What are some of the other lessons? Uh, well, that uh, that would be uh, one of them. The other thing that I really a- appreciate about the pilgrims, again, it sort of was alluded to in something I said earlier. When they think about Thanksgiving, they're thinking about uh, ways in which God intervenes in very particular ways uh, at unexpected times uh, in the routine of life. And so I think they understood the great potential for uh, that sort of mindset to um, uh, make us sensitive and ever-anticipating and eager to see God's active hand in our lives in a way that I don't think a single annual holiday uh, really does. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've often said if 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 I had done this research when my children were small, I would have loved to say, I'm going to imitate William Bradford, and I'm just going to uh, declare days of thanksgiving in our household— <laughs> Uh, you know, without any prior warning, By something, dictate, huh? well, if there's some, <laughs> if there is a major blessing, if we have something to give thanks for, we're not going to wait till November. We're going to celebrate,
1: which when it comes down to it, that's the biblical thought of Thanksgiving. I right? think so. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we can learn these lessons from, from the early uh, days of Thanksgiving. I, the I believe we can. All right. And, um, I, I, we've got time. Share some more.
0: Uh, well, let's see. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the, the pilgrims in a variety of ways, um, had different understandings of, uh, of liberty. Uh, that's something that has impressed me so much. You'll hear so many times uh, that the pilgrims came to America because they, they believed that it was important that individuals be able to worship according to the dictates of their own conscience. And they actually, they don't think of liberty quite in that way. Their pastor, John Robinson, said that it is a Christian's liberty uh, to serve God and his neighbor. Uh, Our liberty is not to do anything we wish. Our liberty is the freedom uh, to obey God's commands. Uh, And I think that's important to us today because when we make arguments for religious freedom, we always start with the individual. It is wrong to restrict religious freedom because as an individual, I have rights Mm -hmm. that cannot be violated. And I think the only argument for religious toleration from a Christian perspective has to start with God. Uh, and so Roger Williams, the great advocate of religious liberty in Rhode Island, would would say that forced religion stinketh in God's nostrils. So that may be a way, mm-hmm. uh, a foundation upon which to assert religious freedom. But it's not the inviolability of the individual conscience. That's mm-hmm. not, uh, I think, a biblical con- concept. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: When you, uh, in this case, study the first Thanksgiving, in other cases you look at uh, the Civil War and you've written about other things as well. What are some of the personal applications that you get from that that we can draw from?
0: Well, uh, I think just uh, uh, generally, uh, when, when we study history, if we do so um, uh, faithfully and, and persistently, one of the things that should come from that is that we begin to see that we ourselves live in a historical moment. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that, you know, the Scripture teaches that we can lose sight of sometimes is just how fleeting our own lives are. Mm -hmm. So the Scripture talks about our life as a puff of smoke or a fleeting shadow and so forth. And I think when we study the past, we we have that lesson uh, reinforced. Uh, We see that we live in particular historical moments. We are shaped by the world uh, around us. And we desperately need uh, the perspective of those who have gone before us Uh, I think the whole idea of the communion of saints that we refer to the Apostles' Creed but almost never think about, this idea that we're actually part of a church community that transcends centuries um, is part of a historical mindset that would just uh, enrich our lives if we took it seriously.
1: And we hope that hearing this conversation today will help you take our upcoming Thanksgiving celebration seriously. We've been talking with Dr. Tracy McKenzie, professor and chair of the history department at Wheaton College, about his research into the first Thanksgiving and the spiritual lessons it holds for us today. If you'd like more information about the book, please visit our website. In addition, you can re-listen to this interview online, firstpersoninterview.com. And as I mentioned earlier, a special word of thanks to the Far East Broadcasting Company for supporting First Person as we tell stories of God at work in the world. FEBC takes care to always broadcast in the local language, training local staff who can clearly communicate the gospel to their friends and neighbors. More at FirstPersonInterview.com. Now, happy Thanksgiving to you, and thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson. I'm Wayne Shepard. We'll see you next week for First Person.